You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm talking to Steve McNeil. Many of you will know Steve from his work with the sketch group McNeil and Pamphalon from McNeil and Pamphalon's Go 8-Bit. Probably more of you will know him from Daro Brian's Go 8-Bit. Uh, and we're going to talk about that whole journey. He's had an extremely exciting and interesting and painful journey uh, through dreaming up an idea, making it successful at Edinburgh, finally getting to make it as a TV show, having to accept that he was not going to be the lead of that TV show, and then watching the whole thing I'm not going to say fall apart, but let's say slip through his fingers. Um, there is going to be some really candid conversation in here. And also, uh, Steve is now a Twitch gamer and a Twitch host. So uh, he twitched this conversation live. If you'd like to watch it, you can do that uh, over at twitch.tv slash Steve from Go 8-Bit. Uh, you can also follow him, Steve McNeil, on Twitter. And you can download his latest special, which we talk about in a bit of detail. It's called Hey Listen. I do remember that now because it's written in front of me. Um, you can get that from GoFasterStripe. GoFasterStripe.com slash Hey Listen. That is a load of stuff. Before we get into the interview, that's a load of stuff. Great work, Stu. Before we get into the interview, I'm going to thank the following people. Um, these wonderful people have recently joined the Insiders Club. Ella Saxon, John Coops, Kate uh, Kate Webster. Oh, no, I'm going to thank her for a different reason in a moment. She's already in. Uh, Craig Johnston, Od Magna Jordal, Jessica Askenazy, Ben Cowgill, Anders Morris Knight, Peter Lemon, Stephen Phipps, Robert Lawrence, Corin Colin Lyons, David Reed, Harry Chalmers Moore, Phil Minns, Alistair Bell, Nick Points and Sam Allen. Thank you all to you for joining the Insiders Club. I hope you're all set up. Um, with the tech. Now you've got access to all the insider stuff. If you are a member, you can get hold of another 30 minutes from Steve McNeil on the Insiders Club, which focuses on Steve's tips and tricks for growing an audience on Twitch and what comics can expect to find when trying to explore that fertile territory. I should say as well, I don't want tips and tricks to be misleading. We talk about some big infrastructural things, expectations and what you can do and what you can... Uh, uh, what you can discover on there. So it's not like a list of life hacks for getting a Twitch audience, but it is some big central kind of branch, uh, trunk of the tree kind of stuff. Uh, that is all at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you would like to join those wonderful people. And here's why I'm going to thank uh, Kate Webster, uh, as well as Katie Funnell and Anthony Esposti, because they have all gifted 
ComCom Insider subscriptions to people. You can do that too. Um, you can email me info at comedianscomedian.com to find out how. Uh, and I basically, you can gift it to specific people. We don't quite have the tech, nor will we for a good couple of weeks, but there is a way around it. So if you are desperate to gift a ComCom subscription to someone you know or to a random person, there's a thing on the Facebook group where if you are struggling financially at the moment but would love to join the Insiders Club, you can join the, the Facebook group and there's a little thread there you can uh, find without too much effort. And people randomly chosen from that thread will be the recipients of uh, gifted insider subscription and if you're a gifter then you can remain anonymous or show off about your name as you see fit get in touch with me for all of those things uh let's get into the first section of this brilliant interview with steve mcneil do you think what are your expectations steve let's let's do a soft oh, let's do a soft uh, uh, a soft open what are your expectations of this interview uh, I've got I've I've got in my head two specific things you said to me years ago when we were gigging oh. near each other, and I'm wondering whether either of them will come up. But I'm not going to tell you what they are. There are two very specific. Oh no! Why don't we start with no. that? I would love, that that would make it a completely unique intro. Well, you want you want me to come at you hard? <laughs> oh, are they negative things? Are they things I've said to you that? No, you they're not like? negative. But one one of them is a very technical, uh, choicey thing. In, I, I probably wouldn't share the other one. Uh, but uh, well, I'll say the other one off. <laughs> was was, the, but was the one that you don't want to share? Was that directly after you made me drink some sort of concoction of like tomato powder and? Oh vodka no, I'd forgotten that. Live you... on stage at the end of a go eight bit, and I got genuinely angry because I was really in a really unpleasant state. Well, you were the only person to ever be Sam Pamphlon. I've just at um, what was it? Uh, the really, a really rather right. good festival, actually rather good festival. You, yes, you were, it was ARG. Yes, you were. Yeah, no, no. This one, this I... one is uh, this is from our sketch comedy years or a double act years. And it was oh, it was an absolutely on. damning criticism you gave me. Uh, oh, and Sam, Jesus, go on. Have we, have we, has, has it happened, or is this, is this just extra bonus stuff for all the internet people? No, no, that's, well, it, I'll decide later. You, you, Anyone watching you, on Twitch you gets, love, the, gets the insider content. In that, in that way, you can be where you're quite... Uh, Conf- oh shit! No, 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 because no, you, 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 you've, all, you've always been very strong in your, in your, in your beliefs of, of, of the way at which you should or shouldn't come at certain things, and you were adamant okay. back when it was you were doing Kiosk of Champions, and we were doing Million Pamphlon. Yes, and with Richard Sandler, me and yeah. Sam, we were, we were rival sketch acts, arguably. We never thought of you as rivals, uh, but uh, <laughs> no, to be honest, we we never considered uh, considered you on a par with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you can read this that what you want, but uh, you you got very upset with the thing that we did where we uh, there were a couple of pieces we did that relied on corpsing or pretending it was spontaneously in the yes. moment laughing I stand and by it. you were very angry about it <laughs> uh, I don't think very I think your memory's playing tricks on you but no, I would have no, no, no. uh, you were very what did I say do you remember a sentence do you remember I don't remember an exact sentence but you were, you were vehement in how um, uh, how wrong it was as a thing to do and, and our position was always um, I think because our background was in acting. Let's just let's just make it clear to the to the listener and the viewer exactly what we're talking about. Fake corpsing. So yes, yeah, so you're on stage and you deliberate, like in a sketch act, you pretend that you're having one of those bottom live moments when you're actually breaking down and giggling. Yeah, and, which uh, but it's it's yeah. actually. Sorry, I've, it's not real. No, indeed, it isn't. As was that famous bit in in Bottom Line was a thing that was repeatedly done, I believe. Oh yeah, I mean it's a terrible example because that's the whole that's the whole point. Indeed. Yes, it's not a fake version of Bottom Live. It's what they what were doing, what they were doing indeed um yeah and uh, yeah we had a couple of bits where because of the nature of the way that we used to uh, come to the shows it was quite conversational we did a lot of talking rather than just sketches and there were a couple yes. of and because one of the conceits uh, was about sam's level of intelligence sometimes there would need to be a disbelief shown on my part uh, that sam yes. could believe a thing yes. and 
because we were more our background was in like we'd both been to theatre school and our background was more in acting and sort of the theatrics of the play of the moment um, we were comfortable with the idea that Steve and Sam in that moment as characters if you like um, were discovering that idea or that revelation about a truth of Sam's and Steve having a reaction that he would naturally have to it and then capturing oh. that and redoing it whereas your position was if you're doing comedy um, yeah. that's not good enough because if you're if you're purporting to be yourself on stage in that moment you should be truthfully yes. you not present a version yes. of you that is false and uh, That's very well articulated, Steve. Yes, you've. you've well, I can't promise it all with that. Exactly. It's a shame this was the good bit before <laughs> before we started the podcast. That's isn't ex- it? But yeah, that's exactly uh, exactly it. Uh, the the idea of the fake mistake. Yeah, good. Okay, well let's let's start. Yeah, yeah, good. I did slag you off. Yeah, <laughs> I you was, did, yeah. I was angry yeah, at a particular thing you did, yeah, you but only because I was scared. At, like all anger, you know, you point <laughs> the finger. There are four, four, three, three pointing back at yourself. Um, but uh, I, I was probably at that moment worried about my own propensity to make fake mistakes because I felt very out of my depth in right, Kiosk right, right. of Champions. I felt like um, Richard Sandling, my partner, was a just a naturally funny, funny bones person. And in order to get a laugh, I would need to work very hard to craft a laugh that would then sometimes go off. Yeah, yeah, whereas yeah. Rich would just go, oh, and people would laugh. Yeah. Talk to us about. Let's begin with McNeil and Pamphlon, okay. who uh, you referred to as a failed double act in your uh, in your in your special. I think that's your game master's try special. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, talk to me about how that originated. You both did you meet at drama school? No, no, we didn't. We the the the, the, the sort of McNeil and Pamphlon thing is very strange because I we we both went to theatre school, but I I didn't meet Sam for several years. What happened was when I came out of theatre school, I started I was doing acting stuff, so I did some work with Hull Truck. And I uh, did like a Christmas show and various things. And then uh, when I went up to Edinburgh in 2007, it was uh, to do a musical called Failed States, which was about um, it was about anti-terror legislation. But it was actually very good. It won awards. It was sounds like a sh- it was about what anti anti-terror legislation, a musical. <laughs> okay. But it was good. It got five stars in the Guardian. It was genuinely <laughs> Not good. Just terrorism, not anti-terrorism, but the legislation therein. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wonderful. It won awards. But we we revived it after ten years. It was really good. But it sounds shit. Oh god. Uh, but I was up there doing that. I was doing musical um but i'd seen on chortles forums as they were then i don't even know if chortles got forums anymore that uh, they there was um a controversial comedian looking for at the time it was going to be an asian woman a black guy and a white guy to be in of their course. thing and it would be 10 quids a night which is beer money and all that happened was i was the only white guy that replied to the post so got the job <laughs> and then ended up being in brendan burns's perrier winning comedy show uh, in 2007. Yes. So I suppose this is offensive now. So I suppose this is which offensive every, now. Which every so often does the rounds, that clipped, that section that features you with a fake walkout and so forth, yeah. um, that does the rounds as a kind of a, can I check out all these snowflakes, like you know, men's rights activists, those kind of websites, whatever. Yeah. I don't know, like whatever, like the anti-woke kind of... No, decade. it does, yeah. So it goes viral and then, and then um, all of a sudden I get um, people I was at school with sliding into my DMs asking me why I'm such a sour prick. Uh, which, which, <laughs> but listen you got your 10 pound a night and I, got that's my 10 pound, I did get my 10 pound a night uh but so watching I'd, I'd always be i'd always liked comedy and i when i'd done acting i tended i tended towards comedic parts but i'd never i'd done a couple of stand-up gigs but i'd never really done anything but what what watching brendan's show and being involved in that made me do was go oh i really like comedy i might give that a go but the obvious thing to do because of my background okay. was do sketch comedy so i just reached out to everybody i knew who might be up for that 
There was 15 of us ah, initially, okay. and then there were six of us. So you're, Jess Robinson? Oh, well, f- f- 15 of you who sort of thought, yes, I might be up for that. 15 people floated around this idea of the thing, and that very quickly became six. One was Sam's now or soon-to-become ex-wife. One was Jess Robinson. Uh, okay. One was Jess Robinson's now ex-husband, uh, and the other okay. one was Ollie. They weren't all together then. They, it, it was... <laughs> Uh, and Ollie Lansley, who wrote um, White and was Kenny Everett in the, that BBC thing. So it was like six of us sort of doing that. Uh, and then they all, okay. they all slowly drifted away and then it was just me and Sam. So we didn't so much form a double act as the other 13 people in our sketch group left is what actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> so that is it. That is. And I love this about the podcast. 335 episodes or something in the can. It's another completely unique origin story. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every time. Oh, God. It's why I... So, and just... Good. Just before we go into the into McNeil and Pamphlet on that dynamic and yeah. what have you, because that's where you first came to my attention. Um, so I just want to rewind a second and look at you were at theatre school. Mm. Now, looking at McNeil and Pamphlet from the outside, it looks like one of these guys is a handsome actor and the other is... His Sam Pamphlon. Oh, right. OK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so talk to me about who you were as a kid, what your family life was like and what made you go to theatre school. Yeah, OK. Uh, I mean, my, my family life, there's no sort of revelations to be had out of my childhood. It was all very normal and lovely. I've got two very lovely parents. Uh, my mum was uh, my mum was stay at home when we were little, and then she was a secretary. My dad worked on the railway, sort of um, uh, electrician's mate. Um, okay. Comprehensive school, sort of just normal working class. I know I don't seem really people. That, I, oh, maybe they do, but you I'm, don't seem working class. Proper working you class, seem, mate. You seem gen- generically midland. I went to a shit school. Where, where, we shit school with guns and drugs, mate. But it just doesn't seem like <laughs> it. Where, whereabouts? Where did you grow up? Milton Keynes. Milton Keynes. Milton you know it's Milton Keynes. Is there anywhere? Yeah. Is there anywhere more generically uh, Midland? No. If you, than if you drew Keynes? a man, that's what I look like, isn't it? That's I'm 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 right, <laughs> I'm, I'm right at the centre of every circle. Um, Do you know? I used to drive. I used to drive. My first car was a Polo Saloon, it and was. it looked like a, a gen, it looked like a car. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. looked like a generic car in the background of a video game. You look like an NPC. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's very fair. My first car was a Vauxhall Nova because it's a wanker's car because it was and it had big speakers oh. in it. I was that dickhead. Yeah, believe it or not. Oh wow! Yeah, I know. So what was it? So did you? Were you yearning for theatre? Yearning for the stage from an early age? Not when I was little. I wanted to perform. People, people had always found me funny. So it was always a thing of, oh, it'll, it'll be, it'll be a comedian when he grows up, and all that sort of thing that some some kids get if they're the sort of the silly, jokey one. Uh, never, but uh, so at school, sort of secondary school, humour got me away with it. I was never the coolest kid, but I was. I'd got a quick mouth, so I sort of got away with it by being that guy. I think. Tolerated rather, and than... were you the sort of person who was? Were you like a nerd? Were you a D and D guy? I've got a hard time no, seeing you doing yeah, not... sports. What was your <laughs> thing? You're just a floater. No, well, that was sport, it was sports is where you're at sea again. You're wrong. Not D and D, but roller skating. Because my dad was a DJ. You know this is from the from the show, but my dad was a DJ yeah, at roller skating. Show, yeah. So I was a roller skater man. I could do it all. I could do. I could do somersaults and all sorts on that. So roller skating. So somersaults. Very fit. Yeah, off ramps. It was amazing. Really good roller skater. <laughs> I, I, I feel like That's you think good. this is all I'm jokes. Glad we went here because I'm, I'm excited to discover that. That's great. What a brilliant hidden talent. That's the sort of thing that uh, hell of a roller TV skater. shows would yeah. would want you for. But uh, we'll get into that later. Yeah, I don't have any so skills you would want me for. But yeah. <laughs> so you um, you want, So what was the what was the impetus to perform? You were just you were funny at school, and you were like with a lot of people. Uh, when I, often when I say with a lot of people, what I mean is me. Yeah. With me, 
I wanted to not be a sort of proper job person like everyone I went to school with. Part of why I liked theatre, part of it was that I found it sort of thrilling and exciting and imaginative and otherworldly. And part of it was I was like, this might be a route into never having to be an accountant. Yeah, mine mine was sort of more, um, there there were sort of steps to it. So the the first thing that happened were, I never really was into that until there was um i think at secondary school they were doing guys and dolls and a mate wanted to audition but didn't want to go on his own and so i auditioned with him yep. just so we'd go and then ended up getting like a, a a main role in it and went oh all right and what in that cliched way that i think it probably does for the nerdy kids who i'm not much to look at Stu. i know what i am but being the lead in a musical when you're 15 or 16 suddenly makes you not a complete waste of every girl's time Yes, and so, yes, so yes. what it gave me uh, in being in that play was suddenly something that might make me attractive to other people. And I definitely yeah, liked okay. that. It didn't define why I did it and I enjoyed doing it, but it changed sure. my confidence. And uh, I guess in the same sort of way that the roller skating, although it is a weird thing, there was a regular social group there that tended to skew slightly older than me. And so when I went to that environment, I got to sort of hang out and be one of the people who could do the thing and get on with people and school. I was yes. always sort of floating around between people. And then, and then the, the show gave me that. So then I decided to do theater studies, a level, but then I went off to university and did a management degree. Um, cause okay. I'd always, I'd always been quite good academically. So I did quite broad. So the, the idea was do something that could basically be used for anything. And then if you want to do it, you can maybe go back to it. But the third year... Now, that, that is an idea that a lot of parents try to instil in their starlet children, that you need something to fall back on. Yeah. Did you, were you pressured to do that, or was that just your natural instinct was it would be the smart thing to do? I was never, no, they'd, they'd have gone along with everyone, but I, I grew up in a working-class family, and I, and I grew up around a lot of people who haven't got any fucking money. So it, it wasn't... I, I don't know if that is a class thing, but maybe it is. But it felt like a really good idea to make sure you could earn money because if you don't have money, you literally lose your fucking house. So that, that was a very tangible, mm-hmm. real thing. So that felt... It, I never thought I could have just gone off to theatre school and I, I don't even know if I could have afforded it if I had. I, I sort of came in 1998 where I think I think you'd lost the sort of grants, but you could get a deferred loan. I've still not paid my student loan back and I'm 40. It's it, So it, it didn't really cost that much then. But no, I don't, I don't feel like I was coerced into not doing what I wanted. What What happened though was... I went to university and discovered middle class people existed and had a horrible time. And then in the third year, I did a work placement at Procter and Gamble, which was so unremittingly awful that 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 <laughs> that taught me that I couldn't possibly have a proper job when I grow up. So, okay. so something changed in that work placement at, uh, in 2001, where I still have to see the degree through for another year, but I knew at that point. I, I, I won't be able to do that. Certainly not work in a corporate environment. Was there, just talk to me, <laughs> this is very com-com, talk to me, Steve, about the unremittingly awfulness. Like, what, what exactly was it that you found so spirit-sapping? Okay, I, so uh, you'd like me to slag off Procter & Gamble, the massive, well-funded multinational company. And, uh, not at all, you yeah. named them. No, no, I know, no, fuck them. Let's call them Doctor and Pram. No, let's call them Procter <laughs> & Gamble. And what, a bag, what a bag of cunts they were. Um... The reason it was it, what, the individual people there. This is this is the difficult thing with big businesses. No one individually, a few of them. No one's really a bad person. Everybody's just trying to do their best, and they've made choices and ended up where they are. But what uh, what what that place managed to do was perpetuate an environment where the company was everything. So so the office had a shop in it where you could buy your 
bold washing liquid cheaper and you could buy a birthday card for people or flowers for them or I, at one point I took up karate in the office gym to learn karate so the the, okay. the the entire place was designed so that you you wouldn't need to go home or have friends I think one of the first things I saw when I went there they were putting on like um like a gang show almost with members of staff writing hilarious sketches about their bosses, sort of as a once in a year where they could take a dig at their bosses. So culturally, it was just all-consuming. That's extra. That's been planned in a lab. Yeah. As a sort of version of culture. Yeah, it was was bizarre. And there was no real sense of balance. Um, I I, I didn't feel well managed, so I I, I was sort of set up to fail with things that were given to me and an unrealistic expectation of what I'd be able to do, given I was just a kid who'd never done anything before. But um, okay. it, it just cu- culturally, it it felt like everything I don't want things to be. Um, and because yeah. of how unpleasant that, that journey was, uh, that, that, that was a big thing for me. I then went and did five months exchange living in Austin, Texas, as like a school swap. Oh, nice. So the contrast of the two was a huge thing as well. Uh, but definitely by the end of that year, it was very clear, I don't really want to be a proper grown-up. And when you say you were, it was kind of opposite to all of the things you wanted, just what were those principles? They might seem obvious to you, they might seem not worth saying, but what is it that you like about doing stuff or that you liked at that stage that you felt they were in contrast with? Yeah, I, I mean, the thing I even talk with my like my mum about now is that the, the, the extent to which money's never really been important to us because we've never, we've never had much of it and so you don't define your happiness by that. But my the, the sort of overarching philosophy if there is one philosophy is too fucking grand which i know you'll love but the the overarching thing to it is do what will make you happy and it's not nihilism it's not as extreme as that but it is a if you're not why are you doing it because you'll get uh you're well you're dead for ages i don't believe in anything after so if you're proactively doing a thing you're not going to find pleasure in and that's affecting your ability to then enjoy the time when you're not doing that as well what what is the fucking point so if find another way or do something else and even if you fail at least you had fun trying to do a thing and that you enjoyed that journey because you were invested yes. in it yes. um we're not so different you and i and one i, of dis- I respectfully I really disagree enjoy, but... <laughs> <laughs> one of the things i really enjoy about your your not even necessarily your work but the, your nature <coughs> Uh, is that you seem to I, I think you and I have similar principles in terms of do a thing, try it like for the love of it, mm-hmm. and then if it 's not working out, ditch it, do another thing yep like do you know what i mean you 've got a lot of energy we 'll get into that you know as we talk about the uh, i 'm insistent that this week i 'm trying to start the idea that this week be referred to as the great pivot for the future <laughs> when people look back on 2020 this week is the great pivot, and we will talk about pivoting and we 'll get back yeah, into that yeah, later sure. on in the idea of um doing a thing for the pleasure, for the thrill of doing it and being unafraid to sort of jump into it head first yep. and, you know, not necessarily expecting to be good or expecting to excel at it, but simply trying and trying until you find the thing that's good. So let's get back to um, to uh, the only surviving member of your sketch group that didn't quit, right. Sam Pamphilon. Yes. So were you? was it entirely... I'm just trying to ascertain your feelings about Sam when you first worked together... Mm. Did you think, phew, it's, I'm glad all those other people quit, but he stayed? Like, were you particular yeah, yeah, yeah. buddies in it? It was... Uh, yeah, it's, it's a shame that it didn't play out slightly differently because we got very, very close a couple of times. And genuinely, the first time me and Sam met, 
we immediately had the same comedic sensibility and writing was easy. We, we never found it hard to write. We rarely disagreed over what was funny or why. We'd, we would we'd push each other on better solutions and better lines and better jokes. But... If we, it's similar to Paul Byrne, who directs me now, who I who I who I write with on things as well. It's a similar thing where it never feels difficult if we sit down and we want to make a thing. Being funny with each other will beget good work, and 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 it was like that with Sam immediately. We didn't get good at that. We just found it's like it's like kindred spirits. It's just something you you just you totally get it. We both found each other to be the funniest person we knew, and it was easy to craft that into stuff. It was so. It was sort of inevitable that me and me and Sam were writing together through that anyway. That it would become that. It was. It was really what special. Was the, what was the uh, the writing relationship? Was one of you typing and one of you walking and talking? Like what was? Yes, that, and uh, guess, and guess like which one room? did most of the typing, based on everything about our dynamic. Of course, uh, it was. Uh, I mean, Sam would have, but he's just much slower at typing. I'd worked in offices, so that was partly pragmatic, but also. I am like you said about trying anything and not and just get, getting it done and 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 I will go go at things. Sam Sam because of what he is is very flighty and distracting and doesn't want to get bogged down. He do, he never wanted to rehearse things or learn things or do any work at all if he could avoid it. But his sponta- his spontaneity and that energy was the vital thing that he put into that as well. But so writing it would definitely yes. be me at the computer, him st- standing up wandering around while I'm typing, and he'd say loads of mental shit and occasionally that would have value uh, and so we and then uh, and, and then we'd find our way off with that and then we'd be off and I, I tended to structure more Sam tended to write more sketches I tended to write the sort of I know banter's an awful word but you know it, with, with sketch double X that's sort of the word so I tended to write the conversational stuff he wrote more of the sketches um, but we both wrote both and we would rarely write in isolation it would normally be Somebody would write a thing, but then we'd kick that around together and evolve it and then gig it and, and it would become whatever the final thing was. And did you did, did the, the combination of uh, his flightiness and your pragmatism, did that ever clash? We never fell out. We've never fallen out, me and Sam. And, and even now, like we've not, we haven't filmed Go 8-Bit for three years. We're still very much in love and look after each other and see each other. We're, um, yeah, no, we've never had a falling out. We've pissed each other off, but, but we're, yeah, we've never fallen out. Ever probably should have, and, and well, methinks yeah. the double act of protest too yeah, much. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you, you've said we've never fallen out eight yeah. times there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my my spider sense is no. tingling. I should, no, 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 I should have hit perfectly... him. But, uh, yeah, 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 fair enough. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so what was your favourite sketch that you wrote as a double act pre Go Eight Bit? Because we'll talk about the transformation into Go Eight Bit and the that, the loopy way all of that happened. But what would do? Oh, I remember no. the, the last show of yours that I saw. Was the was there a some sort of time loop or repetitive yeah 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 kind of yeah, yeah, yeah element yeah. to it that was that was a big one because that, that was that was that was the third show we did we did we did three shows we said we'd give it three goes to see how it went and the third one was um, a body swap thing because what we we both knew in the writing of and the rehearsal of and the performance of things actually we were both fluidly those two roles but we presented them as archetypes and I was very much the geeky straight one and Sam was the wacky one and we both inhabit those things comfortably but had both been the inverse in different environments or with each other when we've been creating it and so the conceit of the show was that Sam had well what Sam had got two colanders wrapped tinsel around them and tied them together with garden wire uh, but if we put them on our heads we would swap bodies it was a brain it was a mind swap thing um, okay. but what it allowed us to do was um, allow us to 
because we'd both trained as actors, to demonstrate the physicality of each other, so actually physically become the other person and, and behave those traits, uh, impersonate, give us different ways to have fun performing because we got very stuck in being the two types of things, so getting to invert it. But also the entire show be about... I think the show was about being a double act, it was about, and it was about that relationship mm. um, and, and all of the pitfalls of that, but the love underneath it. The, re- the resolution in that show was... Um, I think the, the last thing was, was uh, after... After we'd gone through it, I ended up stealing the machine off him and refusing to give uh, his body back to him because it's so horrible being in my body. So I just, mm-hmm. I can't go anywhere and say it, but eventually we agreed to swap back because he's going to go home to my wife, etc., etc. And so I can't let Sam carry on being in me because he'll ruin everything else for everybody else. Um, and then the show ended with me in like a, I think, what was it, like a Dorothy dress because uh, it was Sam humiliating Steve in Dorothy's... Uh, it's incredibly fucking complicated, but the the the, the, <laughs> the fight the fight the final thing being me utterly humiliated back in my own body that he dressed up as Dorothy, having lost completely. But the idea that through that process Steve was finally the funny one, that was the idea. Okay. So it was about straight gotcha. man, uh, f- funny man, that that sort of dynamic. Yes. Um, and through having Sam in me, if you'll pardon the expression, that gave Steve the the journey to to actually be the comedic device rather than the set up guy to Sam as had probably been the case in the other two so it allowed us to share it and, and relish that and explore what and, that actually is so it was quite it was quite meta as just, a show yeah yeah well I think I really enjoyed it and Good. I remember that um like I really that really floats my boat that mm. kind of meta stuff I didn't think this at the time but I suppose now I'm listening back I'm going that's quite Red Dwarf isn't it there's like a yep. body swap episode of Red Dwarf yep. I find whenever I try and sit and write sketches they always like the my basic these days anyone that writes sketches their basic template is the office sure but in in those days you, my basic template was always red dwarf yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not that i was trying to write red dwarf it was just that i'd seen so much of it growing up yeah. that was my uh, that was how i understood sketch to work sure yeah, that was yeah. how i understood characters sitcom yeah, stuff yeah. like that um so with regard to that um that dynamic that playing with the dynamic did you feel like you were the straight guy for the first two shows and was that ever frustrating uh, it was never frustrating because I, I, I've never um, it was it seems it will seem disingenuous, but I've I've never been worried about the ego of being the the centre of the thing. If we're doing a thing and the thing is good, and mm. I know I've helped it be good, I don't need to be the thing that everyone's looking at. So I, I never minded that some of those bigger, flour- more obvious flourishes were were with Sam. So I I, I never felt uncomfortable with the idea i might be feeding sam the thing that then he says the funny thing to because actually i know me delivering that correctly and responding to it correctly is why we enjoy it and i also know i wrote that joke so if collectively we're doing the thing it's the thing it reminds me of is um is puppetry (coughs) when you see um, i don't want to suggest you were puppeteering sam i was but when you see someone who is um who is a really good puppeteer they kind of give it away to the puppet because they love doing the thing but don't need to be the person yeah Receiving the last, yeah, okay, but that, oh, yeah, but uh, like, um, that analogy definitely undermines how how incredibly funny and talented Sam Pamphlon is. But but that, but I'm happy to do that. I feel like I'd undermine him to his face. If, yeah, <laughs> who wouldn't? No one respects him. But uh, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, he. I mean, he's doing his own stand up stuff now, and, he, and it's great. But um, yeah, cer- certainly, I that that was the feel of it is being able to make the funny together. And if the if the laugh is happening because a thing over there happened, that's 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 fine because there's laughs. Okay, there's laughs in it. And and just before we move on from that, what was the kind of 
what were your feelings about the Edinburgh Festival at the time? Were you feeling like we go to Edinburgh, we get recognised? I mean, who were the other big sketch shows at the time? Were Idiots of Ants operating at that time? When we started, when we started, now when we started, Idiots of Ants were really big. Clang had already been and gone by that point. Idiots of Ants were big. Penny Dreadfuls was Pappies. just before us. Pappies were around. Pappies, uh, Pappies were around then. Yeah, um, Max and Ivan was sort of the other double act who were doing better than us. Were uh, they? Okay. Yeah, they always managed to get a bit more. Yeah, um, me, press and, me and Rich were the yeah. other double act, but uh, Max and Ivan were the other double act who were doing. Well, they were doing something. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm, I think. I imagine you guys. Were I think there. me and Rich yeah. and you and you guys. We were just kind of like, well, we're here. I mean, we've come. We've brought a show to Edinburgh. Yeah. Don't seem to be famous yet. What's going on? Yeah. Guys? <laughs> like that. We had that kind of naivety. <laughs> did you? Did you share that? Did you have any kind of game plan going up to the festival? Well, were you? Well, were you doing McNeil and Pamphlon? in other environments than Edinburgh or was it simply that sense of like there's a thing happening and we've got to get involved now we, we were definitely doing it to go up and make an impact and, and, and do well and we so we um, Matt Holt who directed um, Brendan Burns' show directed us all three and actually Rohan who directed Brendan's show as well came yes. on board and co-directed lovely the boys. third one the, the last one that we did they are yeah. both lovely boys yeah they are um, and uh, so we, we had a clear desire to if we're going to do it, we're going to do it really well. Because also we were a bit older and we got jobs and things. If we're going to go up, we couldn't just... We weren't in our early 20s. We couldn't just go up and piss about for a month and lose 10 grand. If we were going up there, we were going up to be good at what we do. Um, but we, we just missed out on the shortlist for Best Newcomer the first year. And we were on the long list for Best Show in the third year until the last minute and then fell off it. So we came close two of the three years. And we actually got... Uh, a best show thing from someone else in 2011 for the middle show. So we, we always did well, but we, the sense at that time, I think it was true for a lot of sketches, like you had to delete the Banjacks, the Beta Mouse, a lot of those sorts of acts who were doing really good stuff. Uh, three Englishmen. I mean, I'm, these, these names will mean nothing to a lot of people at this point. I'm not in a direct no, no, but, but the, the, the listenership of ComCom is going to love references to yeah, delete the Banjacks. Yeah, that takes me right back. Indeed. Well, all incredible acts and all, all, a lot of the people individually still doing things now, although not together. Mm-hmm. Lot of, insane amount of talent on the sketch scene at that time. It was incredibly vibrant. Um, but, uh, yeah, we just... We never, we never quite got the trinket from anywhere that meant that the telly people would spend the time with us. We got close with a sitcom uh, in 2012, 2013 for the BBC, but then the person who was picking it up left and it just went to shit. But we could never quite get anyone to throw any money at us making a thing. We had a little taster for the BBC as well around then, but we just couldn't get any traction. We were, do- we were doing good work and people really liked us, but we just couldn't get any work. And were you were you pitching? Were you trying yeah. to get in rooms with? Here's our sitcom. Here's our movie. Here's yeah, our pilot. Yeah, yeah. Here's our yeah. all of that. Well, the first stuff. time we met you was when we were doing end to end. Like the first thing we did was the sitcom trials when we'd written a thing called end to end, which was a sitcom where um, again we sort of Steve and Sam in it, and the idea I'd had a midlife crisis and decided to walk from Lanza to John O'Groats, and Sam was just unemployed and came with me, and so uh, we pitched that around and, and couldn't get it away. The sitcom that we did develop was. Um, uh, called Toxic. It was a sketch that we wrote for a sketch show about an arsehole city banker. So it was a sort of the worst people city trader sitcom in the vein of Sunny in Philadelphia and things like that. And uh, okay. we wrote okay. like a full episode for it, and then they, it never got shot. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But so we were out there harassing everyone to let us do things. So just never quite got anywhere with it. Okay. Yeah. And when you refer to the trinket, that's how is that still how you feel that in order like with people going out to Edinburgh now, you need to do well and you need to somehow be seen to be doing so well that it's inescapable so that anyone in the TV industry will take notice of you. Yeah, it's not a trinket and it's it's more ephemeral than that, isn't it? It's it's not as you know, have, have, and I know we'll talk about Go 8 a bit in the journey through that and, and, and everything since as well, but it's not it's not as tangible as that. But what 
Oh, I don't care. Uh, what, what, what the pro- the problem, Stu, with the comedy industry in the United Kingdom, I'll just put this to bed for you finally, is that there are a lot of people who haven't done a lot of it, who work in a lot of different places and gatekeep it from a position of knowledge or experience they haven't earned. And the imbalance between the power of the funny people who make funny things that consistently get given money by audiences to enjoy that, the disconnect between them and the people who get to choose what things get made, or the extent to which they feel they need to put their um, take on it into the pot and mix it in, rather than trust the talent to do whatever it is they do, is toxically problematic. So if you can actually get an idea all the way through and do it the way that you want, that's a wonderful thing. But so, so I have so many more stories about friends who they were doing well at a place, but then somebody left or it was hot for six months, but then all of a sudden there was a new person that had to be in everything. So they wanted to recast that person and put somebody else in. There's usually something on the way where collectively the received wisdom of what is or isn't a thing or who or who isn't a thing changes before you can get any traction with a project and if you can manage to see it through over all those hurdles and not have it spoiled that feels like the exception rather than the rule so this is steve not going to say too much about this now except to uh to what's the word re something repeat reiterate that you can catch up uh with his special hey listen by going to gofasterstripe.com uh, and you can follow him on twitch.tv slash Steve from Go8Bit. That's not just following him. We talk a lot about Twitch. I don't know if we ever sort of sit down and actually explain what it is, but um, I'm going to be doing some stuff there as well. Uh, twitch.tv slash Stu Goldsmith. Uh, that's the account for now. I'm considering a different name. I thought Comedy Goldsmith might be absolutely perfect. So uh, don't steal that. Oh, God, now I've got to go on and get it so no one gets it first. Um, but uh, I'm going to be putting more and more stuff on there. I did a uh, an interview with Scott Bennett, uh, finally got round to interviewing Scott Bennett, who you may know. And let's give this a little shout out now as well, uh, as well as watching all of Steve's marvellous and miraculous things online. Uh, you can follow at Wi-Fi Wars and hashtag Wi-Fi Wars to find out that, to find out more about a fantastic pub quiz they're doing live on Twitch every week. Um, but also Scott Bennett has been doing great things. Uh, he's been one of the first people to jump on doing a show from home. We're going to see lots of comedians continue to do that, take that ball and run with it uh, in the coming weeks and months, I know. But uh, Scott Bennett, brilliant, brilliant comic based in Nottingham uh, and a very fine comedy writer as well as a performer, uh, was one of the first, among the first, to really get a bit of press uh, coverage of uh, him performing in his shed. And that is on his Scott Bennett Comedian Facebook page. So check that out. I think he's going to make that regular as well. But we have an episode with Scott coming up, uh, which was live twitched and is still there, I believe, having highlighted it. I'm learning all the technology myself as we go. Um, I have highlighted that interview, so uh, it will remain there for a little bit. That's twitch.tv slash Stu Goldsmith and more of those to come. Oh, oh, and before I forget, uh, I am doing a bunch of those business lunches. I've done three or four of them now and they've been tremendous fun. So if you would like a working lunch with me, Stuart Goldsmith, one to one, just you and me, you bring your own lunch and your laptop and your Wi-Fi connection. 
And uh, down the line, we have a conversation for half an hour or an hour uh, about something that you would like to talk to me about. Could be your career, your plans, strategizing. I love brainstorming. I love trying to solve other people's problems or suggest new perspectives. Uh, those have been really good fun. Or also, we can just have a bit of a social natter if you just want to say hello from wherever you are in the world. So that is all findable at comedianscomedian.com slash lunch. Right, that is as much stuff as I can chuck at you. Comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for the extras from this. But here is the second part of my interview with Steve McNeil. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So you talk in Hey Listen about the origins of Go 8-Bit being that you and Sam hadn't written a show that year. Yes. And you'd apply, you'd apply to the festival. You had to kind of tell them what you were going to do. You didn't have a show. You only had two sketches to rub together. So you decided to go, let's do comedian, comedians playing video mm-hmm. games. But before we just get into how that then panned out, were you <coughs> feeling at that time, is that feeling that we were discussing earlier on about feeling like there were gatekeepers preventing you from achieving what you wanted? Yeah. Was that why you hadn't written a show that year? Was it like, we're three hours in, no one cares, no. I can't be asked writing a show? Was that, what was the kind of emotion? No, the, re- the reason we hadn't written the sketch show was because um, we'd, we'd had the pilot commissioned by the BBC. So we were constantly full-time writing, rewriting, taking notes and reworking the, the, the sitcom. So we'd, just missed out on the shortlist on the award and that didn't quite work but we've got this we've got this potential thing so we just gave ourselves to that completely but what that meant was by April of 2013 we got a very good sitcom script but no sketches and we didn't know at that point the sitcom wasn't going to play off because it looked like it was going well and it was all very positive mm-hmm. so committing to Edinburgh and having to write a show so late and doing that given we were sort of hopefully doing this next thing which was the TV show we, we just committed to that and, and decided to not do Edinburgh because we okay. thought okay. probably the TV show was going to be a thing at that point. Yeah. Sure. And then the thing that was a thing was McNeil and Pamphalon go 8-bit, McNeil which was get a bunch of comedians in a room, drunk. get them good and drunk, yeah. massively overblow the format with, a million, with Will dancing. Yeah. And uh, what was Will called? What was Will The, pu- the punishment twat. Will Hartley. The, the yeah. punishment From twat. From Clever Peter, another um, great sketch group. Yeah. Yes, of course, yeah. of course. Like, it was... So... Let's stay with Go 8-Bit Live at Edinburgh. How many years did you do Live at Edinburgh? Because I, I was in... I, I did it once or twice a year up there. Yeah. I don't remember. It was there a lot. No, we only did it twice. We only did it two years. No. Yeah. I remember doing it in the big room yeah. in the Dome. Yep. Yeah. And then the previous year, where had it been? The, it was in the Dome both years. In, in The first year it was in the 10 Dome, which was like a little 50-seater. It was, really, it was ridiculous what okay. we fit into that room. And then we went into the King Dome 2014. Yeah, two, okay. 2015 we did Wi-Fi Wars up there instead oh yes okay yeah. okay well so i've been involved in lots of uh, little bits and bobs and, and as we've yeah as we've mentioned stood in for pamphlet on the only occasion that ever happened that's right is, uh, yeah, yeah. Of, of great of great comfort to me yeah <laughs> so talk to me about clearly what happened was that then i mean my my uh, assumption about that 
partly based on what you've said and partly based on what I felt like I saw happening at the time, was that you had thrown together a thing kind of on a whim. You'd thrown together something that was relatively easy to throw together. It's like a big, it was, um, what do they call it? Like the elevator pitch or whatever. You know, it was was like a, what's that word in movie when it's like, this is the, it's like a simple idea that you go, oh, that's going to work. Is that's called like a concept? That's not called planes. High concept. Thank you very much. Okay, it's a high concept, right? Yes. Go super simple. There it is. Comedians play video games. So, when did you first think? Hang on a minute. This is this is going to be massive. We've got something here. Um, it it sold out really quickly, so we had extra shows, which was not a problem. We'd had a lot in Edinburgh before, so that was good. (laughs) Uh, But uh, also, I mean, it, it all happened very quickly. So we in. We did three previews in July in London, just in pub basements. Then we did four, and then a fifth show in Edinburgh over a couple of weekends. And then Rohan, who had directed mm-hmm. Brendan's show and then directed our last sketch show, was working in development at a production company and picked it up for development for telly. So August was Edinburgh. It was signed off to be in development for telly in October. So like within three months, it was sort of picked up and being worked on so then we had a monthly residency in london where he'd like work it and try to get anyone in telly to come and look at it yes, uh, and, yes of course. which you would have done several times as well then at the uh, there yeah. was at the wenlock and essex first and then at the backyard comedy club uh-huh. after that uh-huh. um and so that's why when we got to anyone next year we were in that big room and it was all it had lots of production values on it in that second year so it, okay. was, it was a much bigger thing uh, and did that at that time you felt very much like it was your baby and Rohan was helping you yeah, it, deliver your baby? Yeah, exactly. It was uh, well. I mean, yes, but also, I mean, in, t- in terms of uh, me and Rohan, that then be- that then became probably the first clash around that because me, me and me and Ro are very familiar in terms of the extent to which we're sure that we're right, uh, and <laughs> that is a very deft sentence. Yes, uh, and so. Roe had very strong, passionate opinions about what he needed that live show to be to try to get it to telly. I had very clear things about what I wanted it to be as the thing I'd made and also the implication of feeling like live audiences were maybe being fed the same thing each month rather than something fresh, which was the intent. And so it was quite, and not just for us, for then everybody else around it was quite tense. Oh, you mean he was working on refining a pilot, whereas you were delivering a new yeah. version of the show? Yeah, so, so we would literally deliver the same jokes or play the same games or, or do various things the same several months, which was, which was problematic because in te- with, with telly stuff, you get promised an awful lot and things can take ages. And we'd actually finally got something that worked. And so the, the danger of destroying the momentum and the inertia of what was... It was the only time me and Sam had buzz, really, is that live show would Mm. sell out. It was successful and was growing. So there was this danger of, I know we're saying we're going to do a TV thing, and we have got to do that, but every month the TV execs then don't turn up. We piss off our audience and risk losing them. And so that's a difficult thing to be stuck between because it's like, I know why it's important, but we keep getting let down, and the thing that we do have is real and is working and is exciting and fun. And so... There, there, was a, there was an almost immediate conflict between Go 8-Bit, which was, well, our career didn't quite work out, but we can get pissed with our mates and play games. Then somehow that being sort of corrupted into pressure was... No, keep worrying about your career. Keep letting someone else make this into indeed, a thing that indeed. you don't want it to so, be. So, so there, was a, there was a sort of, yeah, there was a conflict between those two positions. Now, I don't want to tread on the toes of the material of your TV show, your solo show, too much. So My solo show, which uh, was called, that, of that, course... Um, amazing hello I'm hello yeah hello. hello lovely hello lovely that's it hello lovely 
Yeah. Uh, get get up in that's it. That's it. Get up it. Yeah, that's the other one. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, listen. Yeah, well hey, listen. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Nightbot. If you could just, if you suspect that uh, Steve is going to pull something like that. Sorry, Steve, is it? Uh, if you suspect he's going <laughs> to pull something like that again, uh, can you? Uh, <laughs> can you just jump in yeah. in advance or just put hey, listen up there? <laughs> um, so, my point being. That yeah, I can't remember. My point you were going to say you were, goes, you, you were saying it. you didn't want to tread on the material in the show, but oh yeah, I don't want to. So that's it's available to download now, yeah. so we can talk about the things that happen in it is without spoiling it. Yeah, it's fine. Um, so uh, tell us how it all went wrong. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Uh, it, well, it, I mean, it went. I mean, it didn't. The weird thing is, it didn't. It didn't. I mean, the, the, the sort of the ver- the version I tell in the in the in the stand up show is obviously a very short and structured way to find my way through fifteen minutes because it's going somewhere, but the, 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 in in many ways it didn't because me and Sam at that point were a failed sketch comedy double act and we were on TV for three years in three series of a TV show we created and we were team captains um, and it was well received uh, and that's rare because if you like we listed a lot of sketch acts that. Uh, no longer with us. Um, we could have dead sketches. Dead sketches. They're all dead. Uh, <laughs> we, but we, we could have easily been just another one of those things on that list, and nothing else would have happened. And what Go Eight Bit did, uh, particularly for me, because of the gaming thing, it gave it gave me the catalyst that was a career in sort of being amusing, hopefully, uh, video gamey, entertaining, comedy, funny man. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to get to that place if Go Bit hadn't happened. So the, the, the fact that I still don't have to work in fitness club franchising, which is what I did for 10 years before I made comedy full time, uh, as you know, because I booked you for a corporate once. <laughs> you did book me for a corporate. I was wondering if that was going to come yeah, up. That's right. Yeah, that's the, that's, that, I think I did that, fine. That, that was, that, that was my face when, I, when I said at the top, the second thing that you said to me was at that. And I'll, I'll tell you. Oh, very exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Subscriber content there. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay. Uh, so it was. I mean, I don't mean to suggest it wasn't a success. No, 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 no. no, no there are, there, I know what's underneath your question, and I'm more than happy to explore that as well. So, and, and I and, and I will. I think. I think the point that I'm making is before I. I'm, I'm making a shit sandwich uh, uh, for my own career because what I'm trying. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put the, the tasty filling in the middle first, and then I'll put the bread on top. Uh, what an awful analogy. Um, <laughs> that I I would not have been able to carry on doing what I do if that TV show hadn't existed. So in in every measure. It is a success in, in in the sense that it is a progression in my career and has helped me carry on doing other things. So so it's not bad in inverted commas. That there were a number of difficulties with it, and some of them we sort of alluded to earlier around the uh, the conversation we had about issues with sort of the the transition to broadcast. The the the, the main one that was problematic was, and it, and it's true now because I've got other, I've, you know there's another show that we just tried to get away very very recently, uh, which which we might I don't know yet, but. TV doesn't trust games, um, and, and, and that's increasingly difficult for me now because when I work with ESL or Gfinity or, or just do stuff on Twitter anywhere, everybody trusts the inherent value of games as being entertaining enough that they're a thing. And then if you want to then... Mm-hmm. And, and what that allows you to do is work out, OK, well, we all know games are good enough, so we'll watch those, great, but now what can we do to have fun with them to make that even more of a thing? Whereas in sure. in television, the conversation was about, well, games are shit and for pricks. So how can we yeah. avoid the fact that this is about games as much as possible? <laughs> because gaming is for shit cunts. And, uh, and as a gamer who made a gaming show uh, that then uh, got helped uh, creatively realised by people who maybe more passionately held that belief than I, 
that's quite an exhausting process. Um, the, but that's not that there aren't reasons why people needed to be careful. Um, there's a lot more money being spent when you make a TV show, and ev- and there has been research done at some point, or there's re- again I talked about received wisdom, the idea of what will or won't be um, acceptable is is a battle you have to fight. The, the the difficulty is is that what what happened with Go Eight Bit in terms of casting and approach and even the edit there are games i played in great bit where i can't tell you what's going on when you watch the gameplay back which shouldn't be the case uh, and, and and that's symptomatic of an edit being done by somebody who doesn't understand gameplay um but the, 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 there were far more conversations about how we were going to make sure that sharon and tracy in essex were enjoying this than recognizing that frankly mm. sharon and tracy or your grand aren't watching this they're going to watch one of the thousand mm. other things they could be watching Gamers are going to watch this, or people who are affable enough towards gaming and like the comedians that are on this week to give it a go. And there was there was just an inherent mistrust of the, I mean, the belief that gaming is a big enough market to sustain one TV show a year anyway. Um, <laughs> because because it did that's the weird thing is it did do really well. The first series got great viewing figures, and the second did okay. Um, and actually, even the spin-off show, we did a spin-off show DLC for Series 2, which for its, it was on at 11 o'clock at night. And it, and it, it, it you know, per viewer, it, made, it, it was financially a better, better bet than the main show because it, it kept people mm. who watched it. But there, there was just no... What happened through the... Like in, in, seri- in Series 1, Rohan got increasingly... Um, uh, moved, to, moved to the side in terms of production decisions... Um, okay. In series two, Rob, who works with Wi-Fi Wars, um, you know, and there were, you know, I don't really, you know, there, there were various reasons these things played out the way they did. But uh, this is more to illustrate my point about where creatively the show sat is that when it was created, Rohan was the producer and was a driving light, and Rose was a massive gamer. Rob Sedgbeer, um had developed this interactive technology that was massively central to allowing everyone to engage with it, and I'd sort of been the lunatic comedy dickhead who decided to make the whole thing. So the format mm-hmm. of it, uh, and those, th- uh, so us three in particular had been there all the way through it, were passionate about it, had really given it something, and, and were fighting it. And over the course of the three series, Rohan uh, was less authoritatively in control of what it was becoming. Uh, Rob was increasingly there more to plug wires in than to offer genuine insight on technical delivery because he was technical manager on the show, but he, he wasn't really mm-hmm. used in that way. Um, and by the third series, I, I was no longer even present in the office in pre-production. I wasn't required. Um, and that meant we had some appalling choices made about gameplay or choice of games um, and, and and also the way that things were represented. And increasingly then guest booking sort of drifted towards... Like we had, we had a, I can't remember his name. He's a, he was a really nice man. But it was a bloke off of Coronation Street. Um, and he wasn't that good at games. And the, the, like the, the pitch on the poster of Go 8-Bit was literally comedians play video games. It wasn't mm. blokes off of uh, soap, soaps play games badly. It, it, it had gone so far in its sort of journey towards light entertainment that it wasn't... It was no longer even doing the thing that it should have been doing well. Well. Because people who aren't funny, not being good at a thing isn't a thing yeah is there anything you could have done looking back <coughs> could could you have done anything to change the direction or were you simply you you understood from day whatever 
that they were driving it in the wrong direction and you were powerless to stop that happening. Yeah. Is, is there any, or could you have, yeah, I'll just, well, I'll just leave that question there. Could, could you have done anything? If you could go get in a time machine and take that time again, knowing what you know now. I mean, uh, yes. I, I don't think I could have materially changed the, the, the way it played out. I think what I have learnt, uh, the, the, two th- the two things I learned through that process, are firstly that when you're doing something on that scale, you have to let go of your baby. Uh, which I which I resisted and struggled with, and so that affected my sort of emotional health and well being through that process because I found that very difficult to have it to feel it wrestled away from me. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, so I, I I didn't handle that well because that was new to me, and I am very controlly generally, um, and I could have n- knowing now. I don't, I don't really feel ill will towards anybody involved in in that show or the reason it played out the way it did. I'm frustrated with choices they made and I wish I could have communicated better why I felt they wouldn't happen. But also, that it wasn't necessarily their job to get that bit right. I, th- I think what's difficult is that because using video games in that way is sort of so uniquely odd, unfortunately, games sort of fell down the crack in the middle between making a shiny floor entertainment panel show and mm. gameplay somehow because it was comedians and familiar in so many ways there wasn't enough weight placed on focusing on what how we needed to use the games as, as well as we could and i think maybe i would now be in a better place to at least explain why um you need to why you need to care how many uh, credits you give somebody on gauntlet uh, which yeah. which would have seemed like... A, and at that point, I'd have just got, been pissed off and been sick of people just doing things, and I'd have got angry and had a tizzy, and they probably wouldn't have heard me anyway. But the re- like Gauntlet, as an example of the TV show, the reason, you, the reason you don't put 500 quid in the machine is that the game never ends. Uh, and so if that happens, Dara Breen just has to make up a new win condition halfway through the actual TV recording that's costing thousands of pounds a minute. Yeah. And that means that my team lost instead of one because the rules just got inverted halfway through, which doesn't matter. And it's funny if it happens once. You can have fun with that, and that's fine. But what we should do, given in-game scores and winning matter, we should just make sure we've got it right before we're actually filming the fucking thing. And that wasn't the way it happened. Those things just sort of played out and caught us out a lot. Um, so I think I don't think I don't think the fundamental issues we had with the way that show played out would necessarily play out much differently if we did it again. But I could I I I, I could definitely have navigated my own way through it better, knowing what I know now. Yeah. And is there is there an element? To which, like when we see you and I, we, we've spoken about this before, and I think anyone who's been through, you know, to the Edinburgh Fringe in the last 10 years would have seen certain shows get picked up by TV yeah. when what they do is inherently live and exciting. Yeah. Um, and then they, they get taken to TV and TV cannot seem to grasp what it is that's brilliant about them. Do you know, so there, there is, I don't disagree with you at all, that there is that, that, that hurdle that you never managed to overcome, which was they in, inherently don't trust that video games are good enough yeah. to watch. You know, it's like they're trying to make a niche. They're trying to make a show that on YouTube would be, it wouldn't need to be a niche because the audience would be everyone. Yes. But they would, there's also that question of the audience, right? If you're making a TV show, you're playing to people who watch TV, asking gamers to become people who watch TV, perhaps. Yeah, I... Yeah. Yes, 
but then... Like, would it would it have worked better as a YouTube show, for example, or as an online show? Well, it might, and, and, you know, and well, you know, we... we we're we're now exploring that more fully, and I and I think that gaming has a more natural home online than it is on TV. But I don't think that's because innately it's a problem putting it on TV. I think it's about TV's relationship with it. I, the, the 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 figures and the and the research and the feedback that we had from the show were particularly in series one when it was far more gamer led and some of the mischief that was in the show was stuff that we had bled through from live shows where we'd refined that and played with what mm. did work and why. It was really well received the the only the only real grievance that um me and sam had in the first series was the extent to which we weren't in it um because we found ourselves yeah. quite marginalized in the edit and uh you know that was another side of it that was frustrating is that we'd been hosting it and then dara dara was hosting it and i used to know about the games and explain the games and then we brought ellie in to have a games expert and actually really when you've got two famous guests coming on the panel as well you didn't really need me or sam in that tv show the way it played out and that and that sure and there's only so much time in an hour and Dara's got to introduce it and Ellie's got to tell you what it is and we need to see the guests because we mm-hmm. paid them thousands of pounds each so there just wasn't much space in it to need us we we never really found why we were important and the one thing that we did think that we'd have had was uh, shoot them sequentially like Taskmaster um, because mm-hmm. then there'd be a rivalry between Steve and Sam each week and that would escalate and it would be about our teams which it always was live um, but that yeah. losing that as a, which was quite late in the process lost any final sense of why these two pricks every week? Be- especially because uh, we re- relatively we were the least two famous people in it. So it was a, bit, it was a very uneven balance. Do you, do you see the point of view of the TV, of the exec, say, who might well be thinking themselves, this is very cluttered, we've got Dara, we've got Ellie, we don't need Stephen Sack? Oh, they, they may well be right, but also, fuck them, that was mine. That's <laughs> that's the difficult thing, isn't it? You go, well, yeah, well, well, fuck you then. Um, but you're right. Uh, I think were I not as emotionally connected to it, you go, yeah, no, it doesn't need me in it. And in fact, the new show that um, we're hopefully very close with now, um, that's exactly that's exactly the process it's been through. Is actually looking at what that show needed. I wasn't necessarily the right thing in it, and I'm not. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be on the production side of that and guide that show through, but that show doesn't really need me. So I think I think I think I'm more open to that as being an idea now than I maybe was then, because um, I think I've got a more pragmatic yeah. approach to it. And, all, and also, I'm older and I've got to pay for my house, so you get a bit more pragmatic, don't you? Uh, but yeah, no, there there is definitely an argument for not needing us. I think more in the first series, I think me and Sam felt a bit bewildered as well because we've never done anything on that scale. It felt more personal as we went through the later series because I know me and Sam sort of. We really walked out there in series two, and we were oh, we were really good, Stu. We were very very funny. We did lots of prep, and we smashed it. And and thought, well, maybe we just didn't really do the business in series one, and so that that was what it was. But then we came out of series two knowing we'd absolutely killed it on set, and then watched it back. And you know, there's episodes where I barely sneeze in them, and it's it's just disheartening to know. Oh, was, as a comedian, lest I forget, that's what I am. It's a shame when you've written loads of really funny jokes, and then none of them get heard. Mm-hmm. But it also made it easier to write the book mm-hmm. and then do my stand-up show. So I turned up because <laughs> you had loads. I did. Of I turned, I, that was the first thing I did with the book. <laughs> when, when it was in the book, it's like great. Well, I've got loads of jokes about games that no one's heard. So I genuinely did go back through it all and went, okay, well that's a start. It was. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I asked your, so, answered your question. No, I think I think you did because that I think that it, and it kind of chimes with what we were talking about earlier on about try a thing and then go, okay, this isn't working and extract yourself and try something else. Yes. The most painful version of that is when the thing you have to extract yourself from is your passion project. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> but the fact that you are now working on a Wi-Fi wars, mm-hmm. 
and B, as a Twitch gamer yourself. Sure. I mean, when I spoke to you a couple of days ago and we were talking about, we, we don't need to go into detail on the current pandemic because some people might be listening to this as a sort of breath of fresh air, sure. a breath of fresh, disease-free <laughs> nice, virus. Nicely handled. Nicely. Thanks. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, but you are very well set up for it. There are yes. a lot of... You know what I mean? I'm looking at you now in your very well-appointed uh, medieval house. Yes. <laughs> with uh, You know, you, you, you... I'm not suggesting you saw the virus itself coming, but you have pivoted way earlier than a lot of people. So do you, do you, do you see what I mean? Pivoting in the sense that, as, as I understand it, from reading a few blogs about startups... Sure being that you have in a very agile way gone, well, I do this one thing. Yes. This isn't necessarily working anymore. I'll try something else. You take that as far as you can. You try something else. And that's kind of a startup methodology for becoming successful. Yeah, yeah. I think, I th- I think it's... I mean, I can't, there's loads of credit I can't take for that. Uh, but um, but I, 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 the, the, the name that I've mentioned already, which is really, really important in terms of the way that we, I, I guess, talk through what that is, is, is Rob Sedgbeer, who who deserves explaining properly to contextualize it is so rob sedgbeer was the boyfriend of a lovely lady called elizabeth knowles who was a fan of me and sam when we did sketch comedy and when we started mm-hmm. doing great bit he came along with her and said oh i've got this thing you might like to play with and it was a version of pong that sort of worked with six people uh, where you could beam controls to their phones and play games and he said well that might be fun at great mm-hmm. bit and so he developed that so that the audience uh, what you can see in the chat now is just all hail King Rob in the uh, Twitch chat yeah. if we do this live. I've joined that. I know that catchphrase. Yeah, you do. Uh, <laughs> uh, but so the, 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 the interesting thing about everything from that moment with Rob and Pong is that really every aspect of my career has just been a single path from Pong with six people at the Wenlock and Essex to the stuff that I'm doing now because it was go 8-bit. Um, as a live show and then it was go eight bit as a tv show uh with rob as technical manager and, and and guiding on that stuff off the side of it it became wi-fi wars which was a version of the show that was solely um the interactive phone stuff that we could do in a live environment and that and that happened because well really no one wanted to pay rob properly when we did the tv show so no one ever owned rob's bit of go eight bit which was a saving grace mm. for us because otherwise that would have just sort of got lost in that pot as well so we were very lucky that... No- that is... I'm just going to ruminate on that for a second. No one wanted to pay him properly, so they didn't get to own the brilliant stuff he was creating. Yeah, indeed. Uh, That's quite It nice. was ever thus. Uh, and so uh, the, the way it started was the Royal Institution wanted us to do a thing as part of the Christmas lectures in 2014, uh, and Sam couldn't do it, so it ended up just being me and Rob going and doing it because uh, we just couldn't not do mm-hmm. that thing. And then we flirted with them about the idea of coming back and giving a talk in their summer programme about the phone stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And and they sort of called our bluff, so we went and did it. And so we, that's been our residency for the last six years is the Royal Institution, which is absurd. Um, and but so Wi-Fi Wars began for anybody who's listening who's not familiar with Wi-Fi Wars. Rob has built a thing that allows everyone in an audience in a theatre or everyone watching a show online anywhere on the planet without installing mm-hmm. anything to have games and quizzes beamed to their phone so they can participate in a live show that they can win. Um, no one, mm-hmm. no one else can do it. Um, people, there that are things like, it, like it's, but no one else can like do it. That's like a billion dollar idea, right? I hope so. I really hope so because I own half the company, Stu. Uh, so, <laughs> that, that'd be really handy. Uh, but um, the, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm nearly at the end of the point. The point being that through let's play video games and get drunk to let's let's use Rob's toy in the show to let's do a show with Rob's toys to then 
what happened after go 8-bit was then Wi-Fi Wars fractioned off as Wi-Fi Wars, which was just phone things. Then a live show called The Video Game Game Show Show, which is effectively just go 8-bit, but I don't own go 8-bit anymore. Um, mm-hmm. A pub quiz, which you've also done, where we Can just... Can you say that? Well, I have. <laughs> With, will you get sued by the people that now own Go? That's right. I haven't got. I haven't got. I haven't. I haven't got. I, I haven't got the money, and everything else is hid behind a limited company. So come at me. Um, I don't care. We'll all be dead soon, Stu. We'll all be dead soon. <laughs> a breath of fresh air. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. So then, uh, so we did this pub quiz show where it's, it's just a quiz to try to help non-gamers get engaged with it. And then Rob developed the way that we could do it online because originally it was just in theatres, but that became. Um, restrictive so now it is a live online mm. broadcast and so last november we did the pilots of a show that will be uh, well this is this is i mean this comes around to what we're doing at the moment and it sort of changed because of the current climate in november we did a live broadcast to multiple pubs where everyone in the pubs mm. logged in and competed on games and quizzes against the other oh, pubs wow. and that was sponsored by okay. uh, and funded by captain morgan uh mm-hmm. and uh we're working with them very closely. The original and best spiced rum, apart from the other ones that hit the market sooner. I uh, am not sure legally where I sit in what I say about Captain Morgan's rum. <laughs> Fair uh, other than I will say drink responsibly, Stu. Yeah, I, I will concur with that. Good. Particularly during the uh, horrifying pandemic. Anyway, yes, you were saying. Always, always drink That sounds incredible. Stu. So you can get, so you've developed the technology whereby pubs can play other, pub, other pubs at games live. Correct. And so, so you've taken the idea of sport in pubs, billion-dollar industry, mm-hmm. and you've turned it into pubs themselves playing, kind of, a version almost sport against one another. Yeah, and 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 so and and so that is one um, sort of implementation of it. But fundamentally, what Rob has built is an, a sort of appointment to view broadcast where everyone can have true interactivity with it. So the reason that's particularly complicated at the moment and why I look so tired is because. The intent was, uh, in about a week from now, to roll that out across pubs across the UK. Uh, but I don't know if you've been following mm. the news, Stu. They're all shut now because <laughs> of a massive virus that's travelling around the planet. So we're, so we're now... Uh, ver- and, and for the benefit of people listening to this in the future, we mean an actual biological virus. Because yeah. no, context, one would assume it was computer Sure, very sort of cat people with thumbs that have managed to hack into whatever <laughs> machine you found this in. Uh, yeah, the... the okay. So, um, so we're now um, retooling and revisiting that to to find a way experientially to make that work online. And we're, you know, we're that's you know, literally everybody involved in that. And there's lots of people involved with it at Twitch and at Captain Morgan at the various media agencies, and obviously myself and Rob. Everybody's working from home remotely because we're all locked in our houses, and we're all trying to work out okay, mm-hmm. okay, how do we still experientially deliver that, and what is that? What, what is the way we do that? Because actually, mm-hmm. while everybody's stuck in their house, this is the perfect time to work out the best way of playing with our toys but i think you know i think somebody from rpm which is the media agency has got to send a green screen to my house so i can photoshop myself into rob's house and maybe we're going to use my bt landline to broadcast a global game show it is uh, but you can it is in the words of in the words of john oliver on the bugle it may be a catastrophe it may be a catastrophe <laughs> yeah. it's certainly not helping me sleep okay. but it's very exciting um and but what what's interesting is uh in it's a, a guy called jonathan um at diagio which is sort of the uh, the company that has has, has captain morgan's brand he he we, we only met him in july he just popped into the ri to have a chat because he's heard about us through a friend and by November, we were doing live broadcasts as pilots to these venues. And by March, we're now looking at doing a thing. And the, the contrast there with the journey of Go 8-Bit of three years convincing people that 
games weren't for cunts versus Diageo going, you see, it seems like you do a cool thing, we're just going to trust you and help support mm. it and, you know, try mm. to make a cool thing with you and actually invest in it at the level it needs and, and make the thing properly is... Uh, I, th- I think I think ten years ago, I think I think any comedian would have felt a bit grubby talking about uh, f- funding their work through sponsorship or anything of that way. But the truth is, TV was funded by adverts anyway. And now, if you can find a direct relationship with somebody who understands what you're about and wants to work with you, you can actually just make. Mm-hmm. I've got far more control on the thing with Captain Morgan than I ever had with the TV show, um, mm-hmm. and that. So I'm going to make a thing more like the thing that I wanted to make for people by partnering with a rum. Than by partnering with Dave, the you know the comedy channel in the UK, and that's strange, mm-hmm. isn't it? And throughout the point I was getting at earlier on is that you know you say, and I know part of it is sort of for comic effect, and part of it is simply the narrative of your life. But when you say this all started with that, it didn't start with you know playing pong and then coincidence. It started with playing pong and then you approaching all of these different things taking them to their logical conclusion, working hard at them, and then realising when it was time to get out and try something else. So actually, the, you've had a lot of drive. Do you think that's fair? Like, do you feel like you've fallen into these things? Or do you feel like... Yeah, no, 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 I'm... Um, yeah, if, yeah to, if I'm blowing my own trumpet, because you, you, you've sort of taken me that way. I'm asking you to blow your own trumpet. <sighs> I wish I could. Um... How I mean, this this is the only time in the history of the podcast where you could conceivably pick up a trumpet that was next to you on the oh, and be seen to oh, blow it. What a lovely visual image that would have been. <laughs> you could blow your own Pikachu. Now, you see, if we'd have done a Macmillan pamphlet, we could have prepared that beforehand. I could have done it spontaneously and you could have laughed. You could have done a corpsing laugh. And died a little inside. Yeah, good. We're all dying inside. <laughs> but go on, get get blowing. Uh, um, yes, I, what, what happens with, um, with Wi-Fi Wars a lot is that... To be clear, the impressive thing is Rob's technology. So th- there has to be that caveat across it. If I get hit by a car tomorrow, it won't really matter in terms of experientially everything me and Rob have achieved at this point continue to happen. If Rob gets hit by a car, mm-hmm. at the moment I'm buggered and it is buggered. Mm. We're, having, we're having to now, because mm-hmm. of the relationship with Captain Morgan and other things that we've got going on, put in place uh, a solution to Rob death. Um, because mm-hmm. no one can invest that much money in us without knowing that it's okay no matter what, because we're a business now and it's a, mm-hmm. it's, it's a big thing. But or, ev- everything fundamentally is predicated on the fact that the one man on the planet who's managed to do this technically, lest we forget what an incredible achievement is, he has actually done mm-hmm. it. So without him being able to mm-hmm. do that, which is incredible, none of the things would have happened. But what because uh, so much of that is transparently the heart of what we do as you say what 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 does get lost along the side of that is that 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 stuff what i've done through go 8-bit and wi-fi was all the shows we've done is i've managed to take a thing that could easily be not a thing to watch be a thing and it's quite intangible Mm -hmm. I, i i exist somewhere in a weird realm between being an mc or an improvised comedian in terms of commentary or interacting with what's going on with the games, there is a very strange and unique skill set involved in delivering, making people just watch other people play games or listen to somebody talk Mm -hmm. about games be a thing, but also experientially craft and refine whatever that model is for the shows that we do so that as an audience member, there aren't times where you're having to watch things be set up or unnecessary beats or pace. And so what... 
my involvement and you know rob's very good at this too you know reciprocally these things as with sam it's not just straight man funny man and it's not just coder and mm -hmm. comedian the line blurs between the two of you and it's collaborative and you have an empathy for each other things and you you, you can contribute in both directions but um what my focus has been is how to accept that Rob's going to make an amazing thing, but now go, well, that's great. But now experientially, how do I take that and make the funnest, most cool show to use it in? Yes. So, so the experience I, around it is as yeah. worthy of that technology as it should be. Is, is there a reason you're not saying the word producer? Because I feel like what you've just described is you're a producer. Uh, yes, you're really good at production. You're really good at being a producer. That's that's. Uh, I well, thank you. Yes, I I will take I will take that because uh, I think that's true. I think I think Rob has a part to play in production as well. So I don't I don't, don't want to own that and, and and dismiss Rob's. Yes, yes, yes. We know Rob's really Rob's thing. And he's um, Let's, yeah. the, the, the other <laughs> we'll do we'll cover all this when I eventually do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fine, <laughs> yeah, fuck him. Uh, but the other the other side. So yes, there is that production element, and also, but it is also sort of auteur creatory it's it's show creation whatever that is it's not just production it is creating the the show thing but then the other side of it is genuinely because of that management background like you know working in industry for years part-time is that i i am the person that has the conversations with brands and uh other opportunities and pitches things into tv so rob only has to work on making cool new tech I'm very much the person engaging with people and selling them on the idea of how it can benefit them or how they could use it or what it might be. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my time, a lot of my time is set up, is taken up having meetings and conversations with uh, Diageo or with ESL about how, ways we could partner with them or with TV channels or, or production companies or um, large scale events companies. Like one, one, a couple of the ways that we could use Wi-Fi wars. Um, casinos want to start using it. Um, theme parks in in like queues uh, at gigs when you're waiting for the band to turn over have something that the audience can play so there's loads of different sort of avenues and all of those have to be conversations yeah. that happen and be explored and get to a place and that's thousands mm -hmm. of hours of conversation that eventually will become the gig that we do that everybody sees and so yeah that that's my side because that's my skill set as well is th this year really i've had to become an entrepreneur again and run the business that is wi-fi wars whereas for whereas for, mm -hmm. until recently i got to just be a dickhead who's made, made games and had fun amusing everybody with it but it's become far more business and are you happy no no but but that, but that's in no way that's in no way related to work stuff I, my life's been dog shit for a couple of years personally so there's been loads of stuff going on so it's been, i got i got diagnosed with um you've asked i got diagnosed with anxiety and depression recently i'm sort of working through that and finding my way through that so that's that's quite difficult uh day to day but we had um had a really tough couple of years, sort of personally and career-wise as well, through the back of great bits. So it's um, I don't quite know how I'm still coping, but I seem to be. But I'm definitely not happy. I'm medically officially not happy. But I seem all right, don't I? Are you uh, are you getting therapy? Are you happy to talk to, talk about? <sighs> yeah, this? no, I can you do. This is the sort of stuff that we. This is the sort of stuff. If we weren't on Twitch, we'd podcast about it, and then I'd give you editing privileges after. This, uh, mate, this lot know it all already. Out. Yeah, I I got I got I, I talk from here hours a week. They all know all this already. But um, yeah, no, I um I I went into I went into the doctor recently to uh, have my knee looked at, and because uh, my knee's been playing up for a while, and uh, the doctor said she went, yeah, no, we we can get your knee looked at. We get an X ray, but you're really sad, aren't you? <laughs> so so she sort of uh, called me out on it and got me referred to I think it's called IAPT or something. I can't remember what it is, but it's like a support an, an NHS support thing 
who then did a phone conversation, very helpful, and uh, then called me back a week later and told me they diagnosed me with anxiety and depression, that they were going to look into what they could do for me, and then called me back and told me uh, that actually, well, we're not sure if we can do anything for you, and there were several things. One was I was drinking too much, so I told them that I'd stopped drinking because I had. Uh, Another one was, uh, what was the second one? There was a second one. And then the third one was that they didn't feel my goals were compatible with the therapy they could offer. So they basically, they diagnosed me, which made it very, 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 very real to me. Then they called me up and told me they couldn't give me uh, therapy for a reason. So I said, well, that's not real anymore. Then they gave me a second reason. I said, well, that's not a thing anymore. Then they gave me the third and I went, yeah, well, okay, bye. So they, so they sort of made it very, very real and I had to deal with it and then and then vanished, which was um, an appalling uh situation to be and that was probably about three or four weeks ago and then i went back to the doctors and they talked about medication the problem i've got with medication is that i've had friends who've had a really tough time with it um but also in case it wasn't apparent from the conversation we've just been having i've got a lot of shit to do and i'm and i'm aware of the extent to which medication can affect your ability to either have clarity of thought or get up and at the moment i can't risk making that worse by making that choice and maybe i'll burst but at the moment i haven't and if i take the things i might proactively make myself burst so i'm having to make a conscious decision to not potentially exacerbate my bursting in the hopes i can sustain and find my way through it before i burst Uh, but that that certainly sounds like a healthy and sustainable approach no it doesn't but (laughs) but yeah it's tricky it is tricky uh, and I, don't, I, wish, I wish I could give you a better answer or suggest, I think, to anybody listening that that sounds like a good approach. But at the moment, it is the one I find myself taking. You're yeah. sort of, because of the workload of the moment, which is kind of time-sensitive and critical and potentially enormously rewarding, yeah. you are having to operate as if they had never initially mentioned that you looked sad. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, was, it was there, but they hadn't actually, they hadn't actually um, made it real. And that, and that, so mm. what, what happens is, is that if somebody tells you you've got that, you go, well, I best have a look into that then. And so I go off and I read up and they go, oh, yeah, no, I do feel like that. And yeah, no, that's a thing. And I say, okay, great. Yeah, yeah. I would have definitely got that then. And then they came back and went, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Uh, good luck with it. Bye. So before then, mm. I didn't have uh, like uh, uh, those things were as present in my mind because I'd not considered them or I'd not acknowledged them for what they were. But they encouraged me to and then you... left me alone to work out what I do with that, which was a pity. Do you think they'd been around for a while? Do you when you when they gave you that kind of casual diagnosis? Oh, yeah. did something click and you went, "I've had this like your whole life, or since adolescence." No, it's not, it's not my whole. I, th- I, th- I think I think the anxiety's probably been a thing that sat there for about two years, and I think the depression's been the last six months or so. Yes, yeah, so the depression's more recent, but I, th- I think it's sort of pivoted. I think symptomatically it f- sits far more with depression than anxiety now, whereas before it was sort of non-specific and panic attacky and all those things, whereas now it's more um, okay. Detachment. I, det- I detach to be able to... So my, my feelings tend to get switched off so that I can carry on doing things. It tends to be more, more my mm-hmm. speed at the moment. So I'm not happy, Stu. But I am. I am enjoying the things I do, but I'm, I, sometimes I don't find pleasure in those moments because I'm just coping and getting on with it. And that's tricky. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. I'm going to ask you <laughs> um, what you yeah. can find optimism in at the moment and with respect to your your mental state at the moment and with respect to the 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 ongoing crisis yes do you have things to in which you can find optimism loads loads notions ideas of a future ideas of community yes ideas of creativity loads of things loads of things i think i think uh in terms of people who are in our industry i think 
no matter how they find their way through the next few months, the, the complete loss of gig or broadcast work for most people is going to force them to reconsider the ways in which they can monetize their skill set. And that will be online stuff. And so that's good because the democratization and the of uh, j- j- just the, the taking back of control over what it is that you create and how you have control over your career is incredibly liberating. And that's positive. And I think until now, the young people had that and the old people didn't. And I know the young people will probably be annoyed that all the old people have turned up on all their cool things and spoilt it like they did on Facebook 10 years ago. But it, it, <laughs> it, is, ultimate, it is ultimately good news for the grown-ups who hadn't worked out that there were better things available. So that's very, very positive. I think that if, if you want to find the positive in the coronavirus, it's that um, the extent to which the entire planet has had to fundamentally change behaviours is maybe some sort of sense of hope that we might address things like the climate crisis differently. I think the planet's probably going to... Yeah, we'll, we'll do what to turn that one around. But it does feel like we're more open to making significant actual tangible changes on a really fundamental level to the way we exist, which I think we all knew had to happen, but no one had managed to get around to actually doing it yet. So that feels positive. Um, My kid is the coolest person on the planet. She's only four and she'll have to deal with the fucking mess we've made. So uh, if any of the kids are as cool as her, that feels like a positive thing. Um, I feel positive about what we're doing with... Uh, Wi-Fi Wars and with Captain Morgan and with all the things that Rob Sagebeer's done and I have never more strongly had faith in our ability to um, be in control of our financial solvency uh, for me and Rob indefinitely because of the hard work that we've put in for the last six years um, and I am optimistic things will get easier even if even if I didn't get off of that therapy and even if I can't take some tablets right now I think I feel by having a knowledge of my position and having a better understanding of the reality of where I'm at with my mental health, I think that makes it easier to be mindful of it and support myself better than I had been. And that's drinking less. It's uh, it's about reading up more on it and making positive choices. It's about also cutting myself some slack and sometimes I do need to stop. Like, but again, talk about community. I did stop streaming. I stopped streaming for a week and a half because my brain fell out my fucking ears in January. And they all just waited there. And then when I turned up, they were all really nice to me. So... That's positive that 450 people that aren't my real friends, in inverted commas, love me enough to throw money at me and look after me when I want to have a fucking cry. So that was Steve. Um, I enjoyed that enormously and I'm so grateful to Steve, as, as I always am whenever a guest is very candid and tells us what's really going on in their head, in their heart and in their career and in their creativity and their development. If you're new to this show, uh, there are over 330 episodes like this spanning the last eight years. um, And uh, you can find them all at comedianscomedian.com or wherever the hell else you get your podcasts. Where did you get this? You must have got this from somewhere. Go back there and listen to the other ones. Um, If you would like to find out more about how comics and creative people and conversationalists can employ Twitch and twitch.tv to make use of that uh, that very fertile territory in, in the great pivot, hashtag the great pivot, uh, you can join the Insiders Club, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to find out another 30, to find out, to hear, to experience, to bathe in another 30 minutes of content from this episode. I'm going to do another, not a resilience special, a coping with isolation special Um, in the next few days so look forward to that and we've got some pre-pandemic episodes I'm saving up Robbie Collins and Alonzo Bowden both great episodes recorded at the South Africa the Cape Town Comedy Festival in South Africa uh, earlier this year a few weeks ago and uh, in a completely different world so um, what we'll do let me know get on the Facebook group and let me know do you want stuff that covers 
the pandemic or do you want to use this podcast to escape from the pandemic? And would you appreciate a little warning at the beginning of the episodes? Who knows? Uh, I can hear the Boutros coming up the stairs and about to invade and make noise. So I'm out of here. Remember to find out uh, more about Steve's stuff at Steve McNeil on Twitter and Steve from Go8Bit at twitch.tv. Speak to you soon. So here are my thoughts. Um, I can hear in the background Future Girl getting uh, put to bed for her afternoon nap. So I'm going to speak as softly as I possibly can. Um, I am really bowled over by the amount of uh, support and love for the podcast that I have been receiving on on the receiving end of which of um, just in the last couple of weeks. So many of you have got in touch to say thank you for the Resilience special. I'm incredibly pleased and proud that you did. Thank you. There is a, a, a gentleman out there who's recently been promoted to sergeant in the police. I won't um, uh, identify him in any other way, but sent me the most wonderful email about sort of uh, leadership and looking after people and making sure everyone's all right. And I was very touched by that. I know that that Resilience special has... Uh, I should talk in this calm way more often, shouldn't I? I'm always... I'm always quite enjoying how calm I feel now, relatively, um, because I'm always rushing through getting everything said and ticked off and kind of self-producing all of the uh, the different things I need to remember to say in the actual episode. But it's nice to calm down. I'm going to calm down further and then keep talking. Here I go, calming down now. Oh. Yeah. So after the very manic first week I had, trying to envisage a future in which I still had some sort of a career. Um, things have settled down a bit now and I have been making some deft moves and relying... Oh, I meant to say this at the top, but let's say it's now. I have been really leaning on you, the listenership, and on certain of my friends as well, who are... And both people who fall into both categories. Um, and just asking questions and thinking and learning and trying to find out more about how I can make this work for me in the same way that everyone is trying to make it work for them. And I do feel as well, I don't want to further disclaim this, but every time we talk about struggle and survival during the pandemic, I just, my heart goes out to anyone who is working in the NHS, anyone who has been recalled or volunteered. My sister is a former nurse and has volunteered to to do work of some kind. She's not going to be on the, on the battle lines, as it were, but um, I, I don't believe so. Uh, but anyone who is looking after people at the risk of their own personal safety, we all owe such a debt of gratitude to those people. And of course, it's nonsensical to be sat fretting about work and comedy and things like that. But equally, some people have got in touch very kindly and said, you know, please keep going. I work for the NHS and we need a laugh. Um, I think that was one of the emails that said, hey, stop talking about COVID-19 so much on the podcast. But um, it may have been, it may not. Um, it, it's uh, it's preposterous. We're all doing our thing and trying to keep going. And there are people out there who are doing their thing all over the world and in this country and all over the world in phenomenally frightening circumstances, real, real find out who you really are circumstances. And uh, on behalf of all of us, on behalf of anyone that considers me able to speak on their behalf, I just want to say thank you for people putting themselves in danger to save lives. My friend James Bartz is a nurse and uh, posted a picture of him wearing his um, 
gown and face mask and face visor, like a newly attached face visor to protect him from any kind of viral load at work. And so much of these, there's just so much being done by so many, for so many, <laughs> to, to badly misquote Churchill. Um, so much is being done. And thank you if you are doing something, whether it is performing surgery under pressure or building respirators or changing the technology of where you work to create hand sanitizer or making people laugh and keeping people's spirits up or just looking after your kids or looking after someone in your life who is who is risking their lives to save others or whether you are just self-isolating proudly and bored because uh, because you want to help save lives in your own way um everyone is having such it seems this extraordinary we're all having such disparate experiences at the moment it's you know we refer to it as if it's a war but it's not the sort of war where we're all cowering as the bombs explode overhead and everyone's in fear for their life everyone is having it's extraordinary i was saying to my wife last night i felt like god we're all going to get through this together we're all going to pull together and save lives and would you like some more ice cream i mean it's it's extraordinary really so so to everyone who is who is doing the right thing, uh, well done, and keep believing in yourself. All right, that's this wasn't the post I was going to do. This is almost the content of the special. Here's what I did want to say, which is I, I wanted to thank um, Al Knapp um, for upping his donation. I mentioned all the donors at the beginning. There's a couple of people who have upped their donations. Kate Webster is one of them, as well as being in all the other categories. Um, but I also want to thank um, some key helpers: Callum Morin, uh, Amanda Donnett. Arif Ramadan, Richard Goodwin uh, and Jonathan Holloway are all uh, fans and or friends um, who have taken the time to give me some real kind of insight into some of the amazing things that I haven't even noticed you could do or things I was sort of vaguely aware of. Um, and I would like to ask you all to watch this space. Join the, the join the ComCom Facebook group if you feel able, if you're interested. It remains extremely nice. Someone did a lovely post there recently about... Um, your desert, desert Island disc comedy special, um, which is very, very uh, sort of, uh, I was going to say it's very funny, but it's very uh, life-affirming and joyful. There's a lot of that going on in there. But also, if you're in that Facebook group, it will allow me to tell you swiftly when I need you to jump on a thing because I'm testing some new live thing. It's, it's been so much fun having people follow on Twitch or be part of Zoom groups as I try and gig. Uh, to 25 people is the record so far, my personal record, but to try and make a, to try and make some semblance of, of what I do work and try and really enjoy and explore all the possibilities, the possibilities and the possibilities that that new technology brings. So if you're in the Facebook group, you get to hear about, you know, at the moment it's been in the last week, it's been a lot of like, who can jump online right now and test a thing? But I'm getting to a stage now where I'm planning things a bit more in advance and... Um, the more people we can get in that group and the more flexibility and the more things you can suggest, you can help us, you can help me invent the future or my version of it. So if you'd like to jump in that, please do. That's all for now. I'm going to stop speaking calmly and shift, shift a gear back into getting a load of shit done very fast, very deftly and hopefully very quietly. A reminder as well, if you fancy talking to me for either a social natter or a full on professional business lunch, you can go to comedianscomedian.com slash lunch. And there's a couple of options there, different fees based on whether you are salaried or self-employed and struggling um, or self-employed and or struggling. 
um, you can get online and have a little one-to-one -one lunch meeting with me. I've got one coming up uh, in about 20 minutes that I'm very much looking forward to, so I'm going to prep for that now. Um, and that is all for now. Speak to you soon. What a time. What a time to be alive. Thanks, everyone. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.